0: amen and amen though we are so excited for you becoming a christian and we are so thrilled to celebrate you as part of our church Uh, And thank you everyone for being here today if we have not met my name is pastor drew and it's so good to see all of you here both in person and virtually through the camera there um, we are so thrilled to be able to continue to worship. It's been a strange last year, to say the least, um, and we've all had our ups and downs and our struggles, and it just brings a ton of joy to our hearts to know the Lord continues to move forward in and through the lives of the people at Redeemer, and he's doing it today as well. So praise the Lord for that. As you all, are, I'm sure a majority, if not all of you, are aware of the tragedy uh, that happened up in Woodstock this week um with the eight uh women who were killed. Um and we just want to take a moment uh just to address that and be able just to pray for that tragedy. Um uh, it was a particularly difficult thing I think for a lot of us to process um with the killer being a Christian who was a member at a church uh, right around the corner from there. And to be honest, I don't have um I'm not gonna stand up here and say, oh here's kind of absolutely how you should be thinking through this, or here 's absolutely how i 'm thinking through this um, as a as a guy who grew up, I grew up in a part of Atlanta uh, that actually had a very large Asian population. My best friend in high school uh, was a japanese uh, guy here 's a Japanese guy still, and I have members of my family who are Korean. And to be honest i'm still processing this uh, i don't know exactly how to think through it all um, and i do know that i have tried to spend a particular amount of time this week and honestly over the last few months uh, with some of my asian friends just to understand the anti-asian racism that we're seeing uh, kind of being more prevalent in our country and so i would invite you all um, with the tragedy that happened just to lament and pray for the victims we're going to pray in just a moment Pray for the the shooter, uh, the guy who killed uh, the women. Pray for his family as well as we're called to in scripture. And then, and ben, uh, Pastor Benjamin and I just recorded a podcast this week about justice. And one of the things that we talked about. Is that as Christians we need to be curious about injustices we see in the world. It doesn't mean that we every time we see something uh, we you know jump on top of a table and say oh this is wrong. It should be t- we should be taking a posture to where we are doing the hard work of learning and educating ourselves so that we can stand uh, before each other and before the Lord and say this is what I want to move forward, He's naming as an injustice and what it looks like for us to be people uh, who are fighting against that injustice. So I invite you. To- to educate yourselves and keep working to educate yourselves this week. I'm going to pray for those victims and we're going to jump in to the scripture. Father, we pray for the we pray against the injustice of our world. We pray and lament uh, the killings of those eight women up in Woodstock and we pray that you would comfort those families. Uh, We pray that you would be with uh, those kids um, that are uh, now missing a parent. Uh, We pray for all the extended family as well as the communities of friends that are impacted directly um, by the loss of those women. And we Cry out to you and name the fact that this is unbelievably wrong and destructive. Uh, We we name the sin of murder. uh, We name all the complexities uh, that are going on in this situation. And we pray that you would help us. As Christians, uh, to be men and women um, that are comforters, uh, to those that need to be comforted, comforted, we are men and women who cry out and work against injustice when we see injustice in the world around us. And we are people that are moving forward in an anti-racism posture where we can say we want to be people that can name the sin of racism and work against it in our own hearts as well as the society around us. Give us opportunities in humility to walk forward and be the hands and feet of Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you can open up your bulletins and there is uh, the psalm reading. Uh, so we are actually going to preach on the psalm. Actually, you're not going to preach. I'm going to do the majority of the preaching today uh, on Psalm 51. And so as Rachel referenced in that last song, this is a psalm of confession um, by King David. And it, and I honestly I thought about just kind of taking a few verses and putting it in the bulletin. But I wanted to put it all in there um, just so you can not only have this as a reference for the sermon, But you can take this home and this is a psalm that I go back to over and over again when I see sin in my own life We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but we're going to dive in here Psalm 51, I'm going to read this and then pray and then we'll we'll have a sermon to follow Have mercy on me, O God According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion Blot out my transgressions You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord we all say, thanks be to God. Amen. Father, we are thankful for the word and we pray that through the word preached, you would grow our hearts and our affections to you. May we read these words from King David that were inspired and infallible that we come before you and say we hold the Bible up over our heads, metaphorically speaking, and say we will submit under it. May we as a people, individually and corporately, be formed by your scripture, made into people that look a little bit more and more like Christ every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to start off by telling you a little background story on this famous psalm. So everything I'm about to tell you is from the early chapters of Second Samuel. If you need to do some fact checking or you want to do a redo a little reading in the evening tonight. But there was a guy who we've mentioned already named King David. King David wrote this psalm. He actually wrote a bunch of psalms uh, in, in the middle of your Bible there. And David was an uber successful king of Israel. He united the kingdom, and as he got more and more successful at this point in the story, he decided to kind of take a break to have some me time back at the palace. So while the king's armies were actually out fighting a war, King David's just kind of chilling at his palace, and someone, specifically a young woman, specifically a young woman by the name of Bathsheba, Who was actually a wife of one of the commanders, Uriah, in his army. This young woman caught his eye. And using his power, he told someone to go get her. And David, at some point that day or evening, made a terrible decision. He actually made a, a number of terrible decisions leading up to this, which is often how sin works. But he sinned on multiple levels. He abused his power... Neglected his duties as a king and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well, the next day, David sends Bathsheba back home. And like a lot of us, when we sin, this is the most relatable part of this story. He just tried to move on with his life and do his best to just forget about that transgression, that sin. But we all know that isn't how it works. And in this story in particular, he got caught between a rock and a hard place. You see, Bathsheba had sent word after that that she was pregnant. Bathsheba's with child, and, and David's caught in this predicament. So this wildly powerful and successful man is, is, caught, is you know, it, you know, caught red-handed in this sin, and so he thinks to himself, oh, well, let me figure out a way that I can get out of this. So he comes up with an elaborate plan. Probably a better word for that is scheme, to try to hide his sin, but a plan nonetheless. David sends his men to call Uriah. Uriah, if we remember, is the commander, is Bathsheba's husband, the commander out in the army, back from war in an attempt for Uriah and Bathsheba to kind of be together intimately. And parents, I know that on a normal Sunday... Back in the building, whenever that happens or back when it used to happen, this is most of your children would be in Redeemer Kids ministry right now. So I'm going to talk about a few things that may open up some lunchtime discussions. So I apologize for that and I'll use my best to use you know language that works for uh, the, the context here. And if you have Questions about how to handle that, you can just email me at leon at redeemeratl.org, and I will answer any question you have, and we'll set up a time to have those discussions. But back to the story here. So Uriah, being the honorable man that he is, he's been called back from battle. So David says, go get Uriah. Uriah comes back. David's hoping that Uriah and Bathsheba are together intimately. But the honorable man that Uriah is, he says, I'm not going to go sleep in the comforts of my home when my men are off fighting in battle. So he actually sleeps outside the palace door. David's stuck again. He's like, that plan is not working. He then decides to get Uriah intoxicated. And that doesn't work either. He still sleeps outside and is never with his wife. So now David's stuck. Since Uriah came home but didn't, wasn't with his wife, sooner or later it's going to be clear that that baby inside of Bathsheba doesn't belong to Uriah. People are going to be asking questions. David's going to get found out. Well, David continuing to dig his hole even deeper, which is another relatable part of this story. Raise your hand if you have ever lied about something and then decided to lie again to keep, um, just keep covering up that lie. Thank you, John, being the only honest person in this entire parking lot. But what happens here is that then David says, I'm going to get myself out of this by making another mistake. But he writes an order hands it to Uriah, and that order says that when Uriah goes back to battle to send Uriah to the front lines of the war and then have all the other men peel back. In essence, what David has given Uriah is a death sentence in an order. Because David knows that as those men pull back, Uriah will be, will be killed in battle. Bathsheba will lose her husband. And then, lo and behold... No one will find out about this situation So then with Uriah dead David calls Bathsheba And moves her into his house To live happily ever after Well about a year later The prophet Nathan comes to David Nathan, an honorable man of the Lord A prophet for the Lord Comes to David and tells him a story Pulls him aside and tells him a story He shares about a rich man And he says this rich man could have anything he wanted. And there's also a poor man in the story who just had one precious lamb. The rich man, when some company came into town, instead of taking any number of the, of the lambs from his own flock to kill and serve to his company, he chose instead to prey on the poor man's one lamb, slaughtering it to feed his company. When Nathan explains this to David, David is enraged at the story. He screams at Nathan that that rich man should be put to death. Then Nathan looked David in the eye and said, you are that man. You are the rich man in this story. David at that point is struck by the weight of his sin. The reality of what he has done, he breaks down in guilt. Nathan, a prophet and a friend, refused to let David continue to hide. He brought the sin that David thought he could stay hidden forever into the light because he loved David that much. And so we see very clearly at this point that through his sin, David's life has blown up.
1: David is, has
0: had someone to confront him with the issues of his past, the mistakes that he's made, the sin that he has committed. Now he has to face the music. And though you may or may not have exactly committed the same sin that David did, or Sam, any number of the sins that David did, of, of neglecting his duties as king, having, committing adultery with another man's wife, or having a man killed on the front lines of battle, we all can relate to the feeling that David had in that moment That not in the stomach of saying, I've messed up Whether it was small or whether it was big There's the feeling of shame, the feeling of being exposed The feeling of being found out in our sin The feeling of everyone looking at you Or even just one person looking at you saying How could you do this? The look of shock and embarrassment and I want us to take a second now just to name and honor Nathan's friendship to David when I was about 13 or 14 years old. My little sister, who's seven years younger, was jumping on a neighbor's trampoline. This is back in the good old days um, with a little less uh, safety uh, going on. I feel like I sound really old right now. But when we were growing up back in the day when, you know, we walked three miles to school both ways. We had trampolines without those nets around them now that I have children I'm very thankful for those nets but when we were growing up we just had trampolines just you just bounce and bounce and every once in a while you'd fly off land on the springs fly off land on the ground just get right back up and jump back on well we had a tram- our neighbor our neighbor next to us had a trampoline and my sister was jumping on that and she comes screaming into the house and saying her arm hurts really badly so she has my sister as an older brother I have an older brother as well and then my dad the three men the three you know two boys and the man were in the house we looked at it you know diagnosed it and said you are gonna be totally fine like grab an ice pack like we'll put you know a cold pack of peas on it we'll grab a magazine wrap it around it put some rubber bands on it and like keep moving like we'll, we'll keep keep the day moving here a couple hours later, my mom came home. My sister came to her and said that her arm was still hurting. Mom took one look at it and said, we are heading to the hospital. Got to the hospital. The doctor said, your arm is broken in multiple places, and you have to have a cast for six to eight weeks after it's reset at the hospital. And my sister still will still bring this up from time to time when we don't believe her about something. Um, but the lesson of that story is that what was best for my sister in that moment was not for us to make it seem like her broken arm was less than what it is. If we had just gone forward, she just stayed listening to her two older brothers and dad, she would have had serious complications probably with her arm for the long term. But instead, my mom was smart enough to say, we need to get you to a doctor so they can properly look and diagnose the problem so that we can get the help that you need. This is so fun. My first bubble ever uh, in a sermon. Uh, But the beauty of this in the the relation to Nathan is that Nathan loved him enough to where Nathan knew it it was the very best thing for David to come face to face with his sin. It's not the most popular thing in the world, but it was the most loving thing for him. And he's not doing it to shame him. He's doing it because he loves him and he knows that he will only get healthy if he deals with it. It's not out of arrogance, but out of humility. It's not out of hate, but out of deep compassion. He loves David enough to know that his best life and ours is a life where our sin, our shortcomings, our mistakes are not hidden, but brought to the light. First John one, six and seven says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. His son purifies us from all sin. So the problem here has been diagnosed, the sin exposed. So how in the world does David go and pick up the pieces from here? Well, what if I told you? That there was a process that no matter how badly you messed up, no matter what sin you committed, no matter how much you blew up your life, that there was a way to come out on the other side, whole, healthy, and thriving. In this process, no matter what you've done, if you sit in your, you know, orange rectangle or you're or sitting on your couch virtually and when we read a psalm where he's crying out in repentance and you come to mind, you think back of that thing that you did when you were 16 or 20 or 35 or 50, that thing that if you, you have in your mind where you say, if everybody knew about this, they would never look at me the same way. If my wife or husband, if my best friend knew about this, this struggle that I have, I would never be able to recover. What the gospel of Jesus tells us is that there is a way forward. And the big Bible word for that is the way forward is through repentance. We have to start naming Not only repentance, we have to start naming what keeps us from getting to a place where we're being honest about our sin. The first thing that we have to, we have to move past is the denial. So often we look at our mistakes and say, Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Everybody does that. You wouldn't, you know, that's not even worth confessing. We also have to name the fact that we cannot just hate the consequences of our sin. We have to hate the very fact that we are sinning. Before the Lord and before each other, I know the most popular prayer for my 16 through 18 year old life was, oh God, if you can just get me out of this jam and no one knows about it, I will never stop following you. I mean, if you and when you pray that prayer over and over again, it has to lose a little bit of its kind of, you know, umph before the Lord was saying, OK, if you do, you know, so I remember when. Yeah, so I won't even go into the story, but when there was a time where I was hiding and I knew there were some security guards coming, I'm huddled in a corner saying, God, just get me out of this and I will never do this again. When you pray the same prayer two weeks later, like there's something else that should be convicting us at that point, And we have to re- remember That it's not just the consequences of the sin we need to hate, but the sin itself. And we have to stop with the avoidance of dealing with it. That nagging feeling, when you feel that sense of guilt or conviction, there is always a distraction to run to. There's always a Netflix show to watch. There's always a food to eat, a relationship to run to. But I promise you, the way to health Into thriving is through repentance. So true repentance, we see from Psalm 51, begins with taking ownership. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David doesn't deny. He doesn't distract. He takes ownership of his sin. And the second thing he does is he renounces the sin. Those first two verses have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression and wash away all my iniquity. Brothers and sisters, owning and renouncing sin is scary. I remember a friend in high school when I was just a few months after I became a Christian, I was in this Bible study group with juniors from my high school. So we were 16, 17 years old. And this guy, we're in this group and he said, I have something that I want to confess. I'm going to tell you what it is. But before he did it, he said, could I ask that we turn off the lights in the room before I tell you guys what I did? When he said that as a 16 year old who'd only been a Christian for about three to four months, I'll be honest, I was a little confused at the entire situation. But when I look back on that situation, I realized he needed the lights off because he was terrified at how we were going to react when we saw him in his sin. He was terrified at the faces we would make, at the expressions that were going on. The driving factor for all of us deep down when we hide is we're scared that if we are fully known, will we still be fully loved? So what happens when we repent? We are expecting to to find some angry God. But in truth, what we find is a gracious father. Father. David's reference to hyssop in verse 7, which might have seemed like a, a strange word when we were reading Psalm 51, but it's not accidental at all. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. He knows, King David, that hyssop was the small branch that the Israelites used to paint their door frames red at the time of the, 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 the Passover when God passed over the houses and had mercy on them. So that hyssop signifies purification. You can read this in Exodus 24 with blood, and he knows that blood alone, and he knows it through the sacrifice of animals, but he knows that blood alone can make him whiter than snow. What he doesn't know is how this will be done fully. But we do as Christians that are, are, are can look back at the finished work of Christ on the cross instead of relying on animal sacrifice. We look to Jesus in Hebrews nine twenty six says he who has appeared once for all for the culmination of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's blood is the thing that makes us whiter than snow. So when this sinks in, brothers and sisters, when it sinks in that God of all creation hears your repentance, not only forgives you, but makes you whiter than snow, cleanses you, purifies you completely, that repentance will always lead to a restoration of joy. Psalm 51, 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Repentance doesn't keep us in a state of guilt and shame, but through repentance and through remembering the finished work of Christ, we get to restoration of joy in a deep desire to tell others the good news. Psalm fifty one thirteen through 15, then I will teach transgressors your ways. So that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You are God my Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. So Redeemer, church, if we want to be a place, want to continue to be a place that is full of joy. A place that's telling others about God's love for us and for them. We must be a people who continue to be willing to name and repent of sin. People who are humbled by God's love to the point where we are willing to peel back the curtain of our sin and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And when this happens, though it's not always the most popular thing to happen, but when it happens, when we are truly here for repentance, we're not just a diverse group of people coming together church on Sunday. We're a diverse group of people being transformed by the power of the gospel to heal us, to change us, and to lead us into deeper intimacy with God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the Psalms and specifically Psalm 51. We're so thankful for the stories in the Bible of men and women who did great things, but also of their failures. So that we can see that through their failures, your love, your mercy, your grace is even more magnified. And may we see ourselves in, the, in these stories and understand that through repentance, your grace and mercy showers down on us. and makes us whiter than snow. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.